meditation. 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 Thinking. Thinking. You know, there's thinking. good days thinking. and bad days. I mean, meditation is wow. like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Um, um, can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Waking Up in Chaos. If we are well-trained, the practice of meditation can offer an inside track to stability in any situation. This is because our path to sanity lies within us and is not dependent on external circumstances. When the world is filled with anger, frustration, and chaos, we can develop the power to answer with patience, kindness, and humor. Today we are joined by Joseph Mauricio. Joe is a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition and is a student of meditation master Sakyong Mifam Rinpoche. He is a writer, lecturer, and performer, and the founder of LifeWork Personal Coaching Services. Here's Joe to take away the discussion. It seems like there are two kinds of people nowadays. Um, those who really are checked out and don't quite pay attention to what's going on and those who are seriously depressed and anxious. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm almost starting to see the wisdom in the former. <laughs> Mentally uh, calling my brother. How you doing? Good, good. Everything's good. He's in Florida. He doesn't look, watch the news. <laughs> he doesn't care. <clears throat> Talks about the weather. <laughs> And in a way, that's really kind of fundamental and sound. It gives him a lot of ground. And he's had a lot of turmoil in his life, difficulty. Um, and I think there's a certain checked out quality. See, people could look at that and say that, not a, just about him, but about many people that have experienced a lot of trauma in their lives. So that's one strategy. Pull yourself back away from it. But the things that he attaches to give him a kind of ground, a sort of surety, you know? There are the kids playing in the yard. There's, you know, waves <laughs> on the beach. I don't know what they do in Florida, but there, there are lots of things that seem really, like, predictable and, and common for them. And when things are different, <clears throat> then there's a kind of a static that happens. It's like almost like the visualization starts to shift and... And there's a kind of a, a discordant feeling when things are a little bit odd or weird or strange, maybe uh, politically or environmentally. The uh, situation environmentally, of course, without pounding a drum here, will probably lead people to have to deal with the idea of change. Chaos could be said to be extremely good news. I just made that up. No, I didn't. <laughs> That's a quote from Chegim Trumper Rinpoche, who seemed to think that people having unsettled aspects of their lives could be fortunate, better than sleepwalking through those lives. That every time we have a speed bump or something discordant happen, we're kind of forced to pay attention a little bit. The uh, idea that chaos is a problem is just an idea. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way, and it doesn't have to hold water. And in fact, what I'd like to talk about tonight, what is chaos anyway? 
one person's chaos may be another person's cool theater, you know? Um, I was thinking about Times Square. At Times Square, is, is slowly we've shifted our perception with Times Square. But had we taken this leap from 20 years ago and just thrown ourselves in the center of that, it would be overwhelming, possibly. It's also possible that I think about my grandmother, who, who grew up and lived all of her 80-some years right across the river, 20 minutes from Manhattan, and basically would always go, New York, what's in New York? Why do I go to New York? I don't want to go to New York. <laughs> they have intimates here. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> and she came through whatever trauma that, you know, immigrants go through, and I don't want to, you know, downplay what the intensity of what's happening now, which is horrible, <clears throat> hard to kind of fathom in a way. But immigrants have always also had a hard time. It's never been easy. They've come here and been selected through, and the ones that could actually do well, I guess, did well and had to fight and claw for that possibility, that, that right to work and pay taxes and all of those things. It wasn't easy. And for her and her family, it definitely wasn't easy. They were Southern Italians, and they weren't really city people, so to speak. It's interesting that she grew up on a farm in what became Jersey City. <laughs> it was actually a farm when she lived there. And uh, <clears throat> watching the world get crazier and bigger and busier and stranger and less like who she was and where her people were from over the years made her very anxious and nervous, feel disconnected from that world. What she had was this connection to her church, a very tight religious community, and that gave people a kind of a ground. And I think that that's what people, in a way, very naturally look for, some kind of ground that is a steadying influence through the otherwise changes in the world. What I want to suggest is that, is that chaos is the way our ego mind interprets change when it happens too quickly in a way it can't assimilate it. Does that make sense? I have no problem going through Times Square. I like the overwhelming quality, but if somebody from the 1800s were transported there, they, they wouldn't know what was going on. We'd be way too much information. There are nightclubs. <clears throat> rock concerts that I actually love that some of my family would think they were in hell, literally woke up and be like, oh my God. Like people are so different based on what our upbringing is, what our expectations are. But what we all have in common is this compartmentalized part of our mind that actually reduces everything we see, feel, hear, taste, and touch down to discernible, translatable, workable elements. And everything outside of that bandwidth, we have judgments about. And very much outside of that bandwidth, we probably have negative judgments about. And anything outside of that, we probably ignore. And there's some neuroscience, Mom, please leave the room while I quote science. <coughs> 
you know, some people that actually know what they're talking about. But uh, I, my understanding is, <laughs> I think there is some neuroscience that indicates that what we actually, you know, become conscious of is a very, very small percentage of everything we actually see, hear, feel, taste, and touch. The mind selects it down to what we can perceive and what we can understand. There's all this other information. It's all information. But if we were opened up to that information in some way without any kind of pre preparation for that, it would seem overwhelming and that would feel like chaos. There are times in our lives when we probably wake up and our world is just unmanageable. I've had that experience daily. Uh, no, but I've had that experience a lot. I wonder if anybody hasn't had that experience. And it seems as though it's very, very simple to be overwhelmed by the profusion of information in our lives. And not only that, but the pressure underneath all of that. Getting back to this isolated, compartmentalized, specific part of the brain that wants to reduce everything down to the manageable. And I'm going to call that ego. I know there are different definitions for the term ego. Now I'm going to pretend Freud didn't exist. And I'm only going to take half of what the Buddhists think about when they say ego. I'm not going to talk about self and all of that, but I'm going to talk about the part of us that actually creates an identity around the information that we have and then reduces the information that we'll accept because of that identity, right? There are people <clears throat> that would be completely freaked out at the thought of two people of the same sex spending their life together in marriage, right? And you know that. And there are people who are really freaked out about the possibility of interracial marriages. Now, this seems ridiculous to say in New York, but it wasn't that long ago that these things were very common, you know? That these things were very common. All of these things have to do with the idea that people will work really hard to maintain a certain status quo, a certain, I'd like to say, visualization. It's almost as if our society needs to fight to keep some things in place so it doesn't fall apart or something, because people are so afraid of this idea of chaos, this idea of things being not discernible or not clear, if that makes sense, right? You have just a little bit of extra information coming in and it kind of throws off, you know, throws off the pattern a little bit. If the point of view is that chaos is simply a way that the mind defines what it doesn't understand, coming in too quickly for it to assimilate or too intensely for it to assimilate. It may be that one way to work with chaos is to work with our mind. So there's three ways I think that you could work with things. One is to reduce the externals down to manageable forms. And some people do that. Some very clear thinking intentionally thinking, mindfulness-based people will move to the country simply because it's back to what's real for them, you know? Back to working in the earth, working with animals, working with things that humans clearly have been doing for a long, long, long time. And that's very comforting, very soothing. Some people will stay in chaotic environments but ignore those 
things that don't really feel or fit well with them, right? They'll keep a lot of their world at bay, so to speak, or separated out. But I think some people, a third alternative, is to be able to actually relax the mind in such a way that chaos not only seems okay, but maybe even begins to make sense. Like a little bit of that static between television channels. I think, John, you're the only person here besides me that would understand this. I can't believe I just used that. Back in the old days, we used to have television channels, and the transmissions came in over these, you know, aluminum foil that we'd put on our our TV. And you'd see, you'd get this static, and then you'd get a station would come in. Anybody that's traveled cross-country with AM radio knows that phenomena, which I find fascinating. Strangely enough, even as a child, I loved that. I loved hearing all those almost stations coming in and out and in the middle of the night and everybody else is sleeping. And you know, you're just listening to the Christian station fade into the heavy metal station. And it's all like this kind of kind of transitional, almost ephemeral sort of feeling. I think it must happen when any liminal situation occurs when something changes. It doesn't always happen abruptly, and it's not always clear. There's always a brackish period where we're not really sure what's happening before the next thing becomes the next paradigm, right? And then that paradigm gets drilled into everybody's heads, and and people go to war to support it. And then that falls apart. And then the next thing that happens. Some people, the third category, will not only embrace the chaos, but actually begin to try to find some purpose, meaning. Got to be careful what I say here, because I don't know exactly what I mean. But some path in their lives that's deeper than what it is they're looking for in the externals. There's a very old source of wisdom that many of you, I'm sure, have heard about, and some may be familiar with the I Ching the oldest consistent book still of one title, and um, <clears throat> the Book of Changes. Um, it interesting that the book that has the greatest longevity <laughs> is about change. <laughs> it's about change. And it is possible that change is the only thing that is really constant and true in a way. However, there is a thought in the Book of Changes that there are patterns beneath the surface that are identifiable and accessible. And that the superior individual, that is to say the, the awake person, right, begins to see these patterns and understand them and isn't caught by the surface things, isn't trying to make sense of the profusion of crazy information on the surface. Does that make sense? There's a particular throw called the well, 48, which talks about ancient wells in ancient China and how they would be different depending on what culture the well was in because there were more, what's that, closer to urban. I mean, it was 3,000 years before the current era, so whatever urban was in those days. But there were village wells, then there were country wells, and then there were more... 
um, commercial, I guess, wells or industrial, wells for business, and wells for agriculture and different things like that. And also, and it, this is in their history, as new kingdoms emerged in all these city-states, they would sometimes impose a certain architecture on things and things had to look a certain way, right? So this is Ming period or this is this dynasty and they all had sort of a feel to them, this and that. And what the I Ching says is the well may take different shapes and forms, but it never changes. Does that make sense? And here's the uh, coolest part of this teaching to me. It's a little counter to our conditioning in the West. But the idea there is the deeper you go into the well, the more common the experience is. The deeper and more connective the experience is. That at the top of the, the well, there's a lot of disparity and a lot of confusion, a lot of differences. There's my well is better than your well. Look at the earth from this point of view. The surface of the earth has all kinds of different, you know, <clears throat> population differences, all kinds of structures, separations. This is my country, that's your country. Within my country, this is my city, this is my state. This is my economic gated community, you can't come in. This is our hood, you'll never be part of. Whatever it is, we have these structures on the surface of the earth that are all about exclusivity in a way, about what our identity is and reducing down the amount of information we let in to our world by being there. But the deeper we go to the center of the earth, the more common things become, perhaps. I believe this is definitely true if you were to take a strata of your mind in our experience. That the top part of the mind, which is kind of the <coughs> cognitive areas, the top and the frontal focus, it's got a lot of ideas. And those ideas are subject to debate. And my ideas, I mean, clearly are better than many, because that's why I've been asked to speak. But some people might disagree with that, and you would be wrong. And we could have a debate, and we could have all kinds of feelings around those things. And maybe we'd even get so angry that we'd never talk to each other, and our children would never talk to each other. And we'd create an entire culture around how despicable your ideas were. It probably would have to do with what gods you worshipped or what clothes you wore or whether you listened to Led Zeppelin or The Grateful Dead back in high school. Like which juncture you took. I'm trying to hit every generation now. <clears throat> um, but when we come a little deeper, a little lower into our psychology, we all have five emotions, really. I mean, categories of those. You could break them up into different forms of those. You could separate them into myriad and countless different sub-emotions. But we all have anger, jealousy, pride, lust, ignorance, you know. And we all share these feelings. And what I'd like to suggest that in Buddhism, if we, not Buddhism, but meditation, if we actually, which includes Buddhism, but also I don't think one has to be Buddhist to get the value and benefits of meditation. 
But when you meditate enough, when you go deep enough, when you go beyond the surface, this and that, parochial points of view, you go down to what's really human in all of us. We actually go down a little deeper than those five emotions and go to five wisdoms, even deeper and realize that there's no good or bad. Those are interpretations. They're just these basic energies of being human. So what this particular selection in the I Ching says is that if we understand these basic patterns of societies and how they develop and how they fall apart and how they grow, we actually gain a certain mastery over our world that we can never have getting better and better at the small things on top. And physicist Richard Feynman has a wonderful quote <clears throat> that science, had, and this is back in the 80s, but I'm sure it still holds true, is that science is learning more and more about less and less. That intelligence, thoughts, all of these things up in the surface area are getting more and more compartmentalized, more and more brilliant about their point of view, but sometimes missing the big picture. What if a farmer had as much understanding about what it is to be human as a scientist? What if a philosopher had as much understanding as what it is to be human as a bartender? What if what it is to be human was more important than all of the surface stuff and the rhythms of what it is to be human actually occur more slowly than all of this stuff up here. I had to, I was a little boy and I went to um, <laughs> 1965. I went to Flushing, Queens, was the epicenter of the world in 1965. There was a World's Fair and the Beatles came. Um, to Shea Stadium. But the World's Fair, I went with my dad, um, and <clears throat> we went to, uh, I think it was a General Motors exhibit, and it was Cars of the Future, and all these cars of the future, which look, strangely, like cars today look, 53 years later, you know? It's really interesting. But I said to my dad, being kind of a pain-in-the-butt kid, like I was, I said, well, if these are the cars of the future, why don't they just make them now? I think they're way cooler <laughs> than that car you're driving. <laughs> and, and on the way home, I was just like, Dad, why can't we have one of those cars of the future with the gold wings and the you know, aerodynamic shape and all of this stuff? And he said, he actually gave me a real answer, which is so rare for a parent. But he actually said to me, he said, because people wouldn't accept it, that the car industries knew that this is where things were going, but they had to slowly develop things along with their public so that people would keep buying it. Does that make sense? That we actually couldn't make a change until we were ready to make that change. We couldn't see outside of a certain box. Does anybody remember what the bleep do we know or down the rabbit hole, those kind of movies about the differences? This is, I think, Mind Waves. That's another one. But anyway, I think it was in Mind Waves. But there was an interesting little 
thought experiment. It, they claimed it to be true, but I'm more skeptical about those things. But as a thought experiment, it's interesting, and maybe you've heard this, that the native people in the Santo Domingo, or exactly where it was where Columbus landed, were incapable of seeing the vessels on the horizon. Did, have you ever heard that? Because they didn't have any conceptual framework for it. So it wasn't until the vessels were like on top of them or there in the harbor that anybody even knew they were coming. And they didn't even know what they were or how people could get across that far and why people looked so pale and why they were so uptight. No, I put that in. But of course, <laughs> what's that? And it's not so bad. <laughs> so there was this conceptual thing that they, they, they didn't have the framework to understand except something. But when they did come off, and all politics aside, there's lots of places we could take this, but let's not for now. But truthfully, the people on board those ships were looking for love. We're looking for riches, we're looking for wealth, we're looking for power, just like the people on the shore. That the needs that these people had were actually the same, even though the applications were completely different. Completely different. And even though, quite sadly, the wealth and power that some people sought was at the expense of the other people. But when it comes down to it, humans kind of all want the same things. The Dalai Lama is very fond of saying we're all looking for happiness. We just want to be happy. Everyone and everyone. And the people that commit atrocities might be just kind of acting out of some inner shadowed hatred of themselves for not being able to find that happiness maybe trying to look for happiness. The way this gets translated in the Buddhist teachings that I most closely understood growing up was the Shambhala teachings, and this idea that we actually all have a fundamental, unvoilable goodness to us, that the very deepest part of us was actually good. Again, going down the well, when you take everything away down to its irreducible components beyond the five wisdom energies or the five you know conflicting emotions and you get down lower and lower what you have is this core of goodness almost divinity a buddha nature if you will an awake nature buddha in this case being a term that means awake not just specifically a guy but that we all are awake inside and it's somehow, sometimes we miss that point. We act out. We do things that hurt other people for surface reasons or for reasons of us trying to work with the chaos and make something make sense to us if we're overwhelmed by our world. You know, why not yell at the cat? Why not yell at the cat to feel good? So I'll, I want to close this, but I do want to say that what a ship needs when it's going through rough waters, difficult turmoil, right, is ballast, a more 
stable bottom, that we need to put more rocks and bricks. I don't know if you know this, it's really cool, it was cool to me when I found out living in Baltimore, but I grew up outside of Boston and didn't even know it in Boston because there's cobblestone everywhere in Boston. It wasn't until I got to Baltimore and saw these cobblestone streets. And where the cobblestone comes from, does anybody know? It was loaded up on, in Europe to ballast the ships, and then when the ships filled up with whatever grains or you know, tobacco or stores that they took from here, they didn't need the ballast, and they unloaded it. And then somebody got the smart idea that you could actually put this down as paving and years later uh, charge a lot of money to live there because it was, it was kind of quaint and cute. The way to navigate <clears throat> turbulent times, I think, from the point of view of meditation theory, is to find a balance and ballast in your life. That the actual ballast, a certain bottom level understanding of things, to not get caught in the choppiness of the, this and that and the other thing, but to go down lower and begin to live with what's really human, right? In most meditation training, there's so many different applications, but one meditation training, particularly the one that I've been trained in, um, is the idea of letting go of the stream of thoughts, no matter how brilliant they are, and, or not brilliant they are, not even factoring in whether they're brilliant or not, just having the bravery to be able to let go and come back to the breath. I think a lot of people interpret that in meditation to be like, well, my thoughts are bad and I shouldn't think. And they play this mental ping pong with their brain, like thinking, breath, thinking, breath. But I would recommend you go down deeper and actually feel the breath in the body. Don't even worry about what's up here in the choppy water. You actually go down a little lower beneath the surface to the deeper currents underneath. And if we could actually sit with that, with our emotions, with our feelings, with our irritation, with our boredom, and pay less attention to all the narratives around all of that, I think we find a stability that can get us through a lot of stuff, particularly mentally imposed things. So that coming back to the breath is huge stopping the narrative of our thinking is really powerful. It gives us a certain separation from our thoughts that develops this process that we call the watcher to be able to see things. But I recommend a second layer, which is to really come down into the heart. And that would include heart work or work on bodhicitta or tonglen or things like that. Anything that puts us into our somatic experience, into our physical world is actually a little deeper than all of this stuff up, up here. Does that make sense? Working with chaos, first of all, has to do with the idea that chaos is just a judgment. What does it mean? It means there's too much information for you to track right now, that the world has gotten a little crazy. And what I'm suggesting is rather than cut out those things out of your world when you can't really make sense of them in the first place, is to come back to here, to something that's been real with you all along. Come back to an experience that you've had.
since you were born. Your breath. Come back to yourself and find that synchronicity between you and you to be the key to let everything else settle. But that's my thought. <laughs> um, yeah, because I was like, is he going to come to a punchline? But you did come to a punchline, which was the, the ballast and coming back. So yeah, I wondered about if you have a meditation practice. Mine is pretty specific. It's like morning, remember. What about the rest of the entire day that's not the morning? Any did you just tips? throw shade on my talk? No, I didn't. <laughs> No, I was saying it was a good punch. I think it was like a suspense. We're like, oh, that's how. Like, what is this about? I got it. No, I got it. But I got the ballast. Like, I know in the morning, yeah, yeah. I'm totally there. But then, I don't know. When Not getting crazy, thrown around by all the little things. Yeah, but how do you do that the rest of the time? Yeah. How do you do the rest of the time? Well, I think I'm a real believer in the idea that the meditation training isn't just like <clears throat> to be good, right? Or because you signed up for a class, so you got to do it, or something, right? But it's actually training so that we remember how to do that in life. So if you're on the cushion and your mind is batting you around, what do you do? You begin to kind of try to work with that and bring yourself back. And like I said, if you come back to, to real consciousness, conscious effort of being with the breath, you actually begin to relax your nervous system, which is triggering a lot of the freak out, right? And breathing down into your body actually kind of calms down a certain frightened mammal inside, you know, to some extent. Once that happens, everything moves a little more slowly. Does that make sense? But if you could translate that to your life, that's really valuable. I'll give you a little example. It's a kind of not a good example for New Yorkers, but I think you could probably translate it to your world, but I live uh, quite far away in New Jersey, uh, across the river. And, uh, but it is different because we have cars that we drive. <laughs> and when we drive those cars, unlike driving them through Manhattan, we're going 70 miles an hour and there's trucks and all kinds of stuff. And, and if you're like me and you're really from the city, that's scary. Like, I can't escape the fact of no matter how well my car is operating and how good things are going and how much my GPS is on board with where I'm going, which is not always the case. But <clears throat> that actually I cannot escape the fact that I'm going 70 miles an hour and all I have to do is hit something and I'm dead or somebody else is dead, right? And I know there are people that just ignore that. That's what I said, the three ways of working with it. Either you just don't do it. <laughs> You get rid of the car and stay in Manhattan, which I did for years. Or you somehow get more aggressive and try to fight your way through it. But I think the median way of doing it is to breathe through it, to actually use the meditation to get you through it. So this is, sorry, to answer your question more succinctly, that I actually have to breathe and feel my breath, feel my breath in my diaphragm as I drive. Not to say that meditation has to be, you know, some altered space where I'm looking at the sky or something. It could be right there and coming into contact with my breath and feeling my breath. It keeps me present. It keeps my nervous system calm or a little bit calm. Does that make sense? 
And he keeps me from freaking out and getting into road rage and all that other stuff that has nothing to do with helping you navigate. Now, you can translate that however it is in your life. I have um, a couple of clients who are performers and sort of working with actors, uh, how important it is for them to just breathe. And then one of the actors told me, oh, yeah, I can just sit there off stage and go into a deep state of meditation. I was like, no, no. You could just be yourself and become aware of your breathing and just become aware of your posture because posture tells the mind something, right? So if you're going like this, you're telling your mind something. And if you're like this, if you're tense, you're telling your mind something. How does a confident actor present themselves, right? How does a confident business person present themselves? How do we present ourselves with confidence and connection and actually become aware of the breathing and bring ourselves into that moment. Does that make sense? Again, instead of fighting all of the things up here, coming down to something deeper, breathing through it in the body. I promise I won't give a 10-minute answer to every question if you have another one that just fed into the parts of the talk that I hadn't got to, so. How do some people here work with chaos? Or even define chaos? Like, what is that? What does that mean? Feeling out of control. Feeling out of control? How would you gain control back? Well, what I do after having learned something, I try to relax that whole notion. But traditionally, it's like trying to make things happen as if you had control over them. Arguing with somebody or um, telling the person on the telephone that they're wrong or trying to get things back into the way you want them to be. But over the years, it's, I think it's more relaxing the notion that we really can't control everything. It's not really in your hands. It's not really up to you. There is the, op the option, though, you have then to... Uh, could, would you mind saying a bit more? Because there is the option that one could take to just check out then. Well, it's up to God, right? So how do you stay engaged in your life and give up control? How do I stay engaged with my life and still give up and give up control? Yeah, or at least the conscious idea of control. You know, it may be that by giving that up, you're in more control. Well, <clears throat> the idea of being controlled is mostly in my head, so it's to come back to my sensory mm -hmm. experiences, or if I'm talking to somebody, to actually listen to what they're saying. So sort of, I guess getting out of my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby. And I think that parallels what I was saying, too, of being in more in the body, right? More in the thing. Um, the yeah. thought that came to mind for me is um, just, like, loving the world. Um, uh, like, my like family members and stuff, like, I don't want to control what they do with their lives, but I love them, and I want to see wonderful things, so I'll protect them, and I'll do things if I think that they need to be done, but I'm not going to, like puppet master every single person in my life because it's more beautiful to like see how everything turns out 
Um, obviously, you know, the older you get, the more you kind of learn when you need to put the brakes on things. But um, it's like a curiosity and like a love of the world uh, to me that makes it like you want to engage, but you also want to observe. <laughs> nice. So chaos means to me no order whatsoever. Right. You cannot, there's nothing repeatable, no, no, it's impossible to find an order. So, uh, and change is constant, it seems, so, but there could be, you know, the breath is going to happen until it doesn't, so that's a through line that you could come back to, to... You know, it's a that's an order in a way that there'll be another breath for a while, <laughs> for a little while, and um, and then how you relate to the breath. So I I really loved your image. Well, I loved the the well image, but uh, but especially the um, ship and the ballast, because that I felt like the breath is kind of that ballast. Yes. You know, and then, yes. But you've got that. Yeah. At one point. Yeah. So. Thank you for that. Gives you something deeper to return to, mm -hmm. to create some kind of a through line. Mm. And it just it keeps it up. It keeps you from <laughs> drowning, <laughs> basically, That's I right. guess. Yeah. It's ironic, isn't it, that mm. you need to sink in to the water to keep from drowning, yeah. right? Because yeah. if you're on the surface, you're going to get beaten around. But by actually sinking in a little bit, you have more stability. Yeah, and I love yeah. that third, yeah, going beneath the surface of the way, you know, which I've had a, a lot of experience with. Mm -hmm. You know, so I can really feel that, you know, yeah. the surface is, you know, and then underneath is just quiet. So yeah. Yeah. So, thank, thank you. Thank you. There's a... So what I tend to do when chaos comes around is I stick my head in the sand and I pretend it's not happening. And then I wait for it to go away. <laughs> and sometimes it does. And uh, usually it doesn't. And then you kind of have to pull your head back out of the sand and go, okay, um, what, what do I do now? Um, and so then I do, I guess, what we've been talking about here. Um, but one of the things that I like about coming here is that, is that it, you know, my tendency is to pretend it's not happening. And meditation kind of makes that a little more difficult to actually believe. And then you begin to face it a little sooner. And once you face it a little sooner, you start doing something about it. It's a little sooner and a little sooner and a little sooner. And so your life tend, my life tends to be a little more stable as time goes by, just because I'm pulling my head out of the sand a little sooner. Mm -hmm. So thank you. You're welcome. For the part that you play in getting me to pull my head out of the sand a little sooner. I was just going to say there is also a, one thing that kind of hasn't been said outright, but I've alluded to a little bit. And now that Muhammad, who's a doctor, is gone, I can <laughs> just talk like I know what I'm talking about. But I do believe in the, in the soothing aspect of the breath to the nervous system. And how much of our nervous system, when it's triggered, gets the mind to believe all this stuff that we wouldn't otherwise believe, you know? Like we get triggered and there's this road rage potential happening or whatever it is, you know? I'm leaving or whatever. It's going on up here. 
And it's really triggered by feelings inside somehow. And I think the breath can bring us sort of down out of that. Does that make sense? That's again, this idea of coming down and might find it easier to navigate those things, better ways to express those things or something like that. Now, when I was saying that you could drive in the car and do your meditation to keep, or in the wings before your performance, or you know, waiting for a board meeting or wherever it is, I think that the efficacy of that is dependent upon actual formal practice. I wasn't suggesting just go in traffic and meditate, but actually do it at home or here or other places as a regular thing, and the mind starts to learn oh, this isn't necessarily real. I don't have to keep going up there and grabbing onto this stuff. I can actually come back here. And I'm the one that needs the help, you know? I think another thing that goes on with me, what you were saying with the controlling, is like, it's like it's up to me. I have to figure it all out. <laughs> but there's a kind of little guy here that is scared. <laughs> so maybe come back here and go, okay, it's okay and calm yourself down, and then maybe then things clarify from that point of view. Yes, sir? Um, so, it was interesting, I was, one of my doctors who I see once a year for the annual checkup, and she was always interested in meditation, and I was telling her about meditation, and then uh, the last visit I had, she said, oh, you know, I, I've discovered why meditation works. Um, so this is the science of it, or the medical side of it. She said, um, the reason it's so important to put your emphasis on the out-breath is because the out-breath actually triggers the parasympathetic nervous system, and the parasympathetic nervous system is what calms you down. So I just thought it was great that, you know, it's like she had to have some proof but now that it's, it's shown, like the scientists have now said over the world, everything that Buddhists, not everything, but the Dalai Lama's things with scientists, they, now that it's been proven, she really thinks meditation's great. <laughs> but it's interesting that the out-breath is what triggers the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the common part. Which is interesting, right? It's like going up here to the conceptual mind, which is the province of what I was saying, ego a lot for us, to prove that this is real. <laughs> but that's okay. I've heard it said that you could, you could use ego to go beyond ego, right? Yeah. Use your concepts and go beyond them or something like that. But one last thing in terms of the analogy of the water, the surface, see the surface and then you go down to deeper currents below, is um, that you could think of it in terms of applying this to your life as like navigating in the same way that you would navigate a, a, a ship, which I'm sure we all do on a regular basis, so, so I'm using the analogy. But in, if you've ever driven a boat, I don't even know what to call it. You don't really drive a boat, right? <laughs> but has anybody ever done that? Well, you know how you, you, you don't just go right and go into the, your parking spot, right? You have to tack and navigate and sometimes go out of your way to, to, to go where you're going. 
depending on the currents underneath and the resistance of the water. I think life is like that. And I think one thing that happens for us is we just think, oh, we should be able to do the next thing. Like, I should lose weight, or I should get this job, or I should do this and that. And that's our brain talking, you know? But maybe our heart feels differently about those things. And maybe we need to give, have a little more patience, come down a little deeper into our experience. Does that make sense? And take a little bit more time to get to what we want than the brain would give us. And I think that that's another way of forestalling, slamming up against the chaos stuff keep the brain coming back to what's actually happening, which is, you know, right here. And giving ourselves time to kind of navigate the process and to be in real time, not just conceptual time. Where you're gonna you're holding the wand of power. <laughs> well let's see how I do with this. So, uh, just I think it's a question you're talking about ego, your definition of ego being uh, that which kind of reduces things and, mm -hmm. and you know, makes them more finite and graspable. And uh, I always think of language like that. The minute you apply a word to something, you kind of, it loses a lot of its complexity. And, and so thought, kind of right away, is, is always language. Thought means language, so thought and ego. Kind of, when you get lost in thought, you're kind of, you could say you're getting lost in ego in the way that you defined it, in these conceptions that are, yeah. yeah, is that? Okay. Yeah, we, we refer to it like in, in Buddhist theory, refer to it as conception, as being problematic. Because it's almost like a conception makes it real. Once it's real, it's pretty limited. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It allows us to talk to each other. But it allows us to talk to each other. <laughs> so so sometimes they'll talk about provisional as opposed to, uh, what's the opposite between provisional and, I mean, absolute. It's oh, like okay. absolute yeah, and relative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But th th another term for it is provisional teachings as opposed to definitive like a definitive meaning, that you just have something that leads people to it because we need language, but language, it doesn't really, isn't the experience, right? Leela? Yeah, I yeah, have hey. a question. It's a bit maybe what, it's kind of related, but just thinking about two opposites, like you're saying that you put ballast in and it makes sense, but if you put too much in, then you would also sink. So yeah. it also made me think about, you know, maybe improv comedy for you, but being an improvising musician or being on tour and moving country a lot, like I've had a pretty all-over-the-place kind of life. Sometimes in those situations, I feel myself completely, you know, just being in a different town, meeting new people, I think, I feel really myself. And then as I get more grounded in a, a spot, I take on all these things and I've got all these more commitments and then I'm suddenly really stressed out because I have a hundred commitments and I take on too many projects and... In a way, sometimes that kind of free-floating, improvised thing is, feels more the real me, which is mm -hmm. kind of weird. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you... I guess I, I know you must know what I mean because you also do... You improvise, right? I mean, it's not that like you wrote this talk all down. So. Right. Yeah, I just wondered if you could speak about the other side of when chaos is kind of helpful or... I don't know, sitting, resting in the middle. I don't know, I guess, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there is a term, another Buddhist term, uh, which is the middle way, right? It, it, in, in, uh, it, but I mean, literally that, that actually also, I think the middle way gets misunderstood, or one thing it's not seen about the middle way is that it could be a resolution of two opposites, right? Or bringing them together. It doesn't have to just be a, a negation of either. Does that make sense? So for instance, when improv artists are taught to improv in, in, in theater, I didn't know it's different in music and stuff. But, but we give them structure. That's what we give them, right? When people watch it, they think, wow, these people are brilliant. They're just making this up. No, they're not. <laughs> and they've got structure. There are certain things that, an inner process that you go through that keep that spontaneity from falling, making everything fall apart. Does that make sense? And one of the elements of that structure which I think applies to anybody, whether you're improvisational or not, is this idea of yes, which I think is a profound teaching. Yes. Yes, and. So like in improvisation, you would only say yes to any input, impulse, or suggestion. And look at every suggestion as a gift, even if you don't want it. <laughs> and then you have the recourse to say yes, and or yes, but do you want to say more about that, Bobby, being an expert on this? Yes, an expert. I've been doing it all of four years. Um, oh, you just blocked me, dude. That wasn't a yes. That was a, that wasn't exactly a yes. Well, so what I was going to say is it's, um, it's, it's an acceptance. An acceptance. I yes. could come at you and say, we're breaking up in a scene. Mm -hmm. And you could say no, because your character doesn't want to break up, but you're agreeing that this is the argument we're having. Right. So it's you accept the world as it is. So when you get this suggestion, you could go any direction you want with it, but you're accepting that that is the suggestion. Yeah. You don't have to, just because somebody says soul cycle, you don't have to get on a pretend bike and start biking. You could go and be a cult leader uh, in your scene, because it's, that's just where you begin. Yeah. So it's... Um, it's saying yes to something. The reality. The reality. It's a shared or the proposed reality. reality. Yeah. You're you're yeah. getting on board. You're That's right. Ballasting your scene partner. And it's also knowing. I think this probably relates to other forms like music and stuff. That that reality is provisional. It's only temporary. It's just what we're creating right now. You know, and then it'll dissolve. And to to get kind of used to that. Lots of letting go, but to have some sense of form that doesn't lock you down, you know, where you could be creative. Does, does anybody know what Jackson Pollock did? I don't I learned this and I forgot it. This would be so perfect for this talk. Do you, do you know? Yeah, I mean, he learned that somewhere. Like, did he do that commercially? Or somebody told me, and it made complete sense. It's, he didn't just make it up. That was like something he was... Yeah, yeah, well, my point is that there was something technical, anyway, he was doing. He wasn't just throwing stuff, right, randomly. In his mind, he was trying to create balance and order within that. But when you see it, and I think when people saw it in the 50s who weren't artists, they, they, they thought it was chaotic. He know? came out of a very traditional art training here uh -huh. in New York that 
was very forward-looking, but he, he well, anyway, I, I'm, this might be in another direction, but I'm not sure. Um, no, we, we been, have to stay only in uh, one direction uh, so that I've it been, doesn't go I've into been, chaos at all. I've been yeah. thinking, as I've been listening, that we, ha we live in a world right now, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, that has a lot of chaos. And the issue of becoming sort of normalized to this sort of chaotic sort of world that we're, we're in right now and how that normalization of things that we would have thought five years ago, like, wow, no, nobody would yeah. ever do that kind of thing. So, so that whole thing about chaos and how as a society you can become kind of like, and I, I don't know where I'm necessarily going with this, but, but um, I also would say, like for me, I'm one of those people that, um, I was thinking about you, like, oh, you really like Times Square, <laughs> you know? Like you, you would be like my brother. I would be like, how fast can I get across this block? You know, like, and is there any way I can actually avoid it? Well, I think like any New Yorker, I do try to avoid it. I mean, we oh. all do. Oh, good. You know. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> but so, so anyway, I, I, I'm just thinking about, I guess, like, chaos becoming so normal in our world that people think of it as maybe the middle way right now. I don't know. Hopefully not. But just since we're talking about chaos, well, the chaos could be uh, kind of a. We could be talking about something different. It sounds like you're talking about chaos being things you don't like, right? Like this, which is very true for me in this world, right? So, say the current political climate, you know. But is that actually chaos, or is that more of a um, kind of a cognitive dissonance, you know, or spiritual dissonance? Like it's a separation between many of our hearts and souls, and <laughs> we never thought things would get like this. But when, when this, the current administration got elected, we had a meeting. Remember we had this group, Dharma Junkies? And you guys were there, and uh, we had the group, and we talked about it. We were stunned. Like, we sat there going, oh, my God, what is the thing? And there was somebody in the group, I don't know who it was, don't remember now, but he was of Indian descent, and he said, oh, I can't say what he said without doing a bad accent, sorry. <laughs> but he said, oh, your country is so young. <laughs> he said... My people have been through this for 5,000 years, you know? And he just didn't, he saw it on a whole different level, which was funny. I mean, it could almost be dismissive, but he didn't feel dismissive. It felt really like he was saying, what we were saying here is go down underneath the story. What's the truth and what will actually happen 10 years from now, you know, or something like that. I mean, I'm, I tend to think that if we don't make some corrections, 10 years from now could be a horrible place to be in climate and in politics. But that's my belief system. 
but as as things don't happen my way <laughs> is that chaos <laughs> you know or does that make me a disagreeable person you know uh, I don't know I think it's better to be kind and be good and be there with ourselves and for ourselves and I want to suggest that as a primary cornerstone consideration of compassion is self-care and actually being your own good buddy you know like you've been there from the very beginning with yourself and maybe you didn't like it all the time and maybe aren't even aware of it all the time but that's one thing that to me has been the most profound thing for me about meditation is beginning to understand myself in a deeper deeper way to become more acceptant of that person and more on board with that person. And that, that's really what I encourage people to look at that part of it. Yes, enlightenment is wonderful and great compassion is tremendous, but I think we have to kind of begin to know what this is here too. I just manipulated that so I had the last word. It felt like I'm getting the big bucks, so. I should. Um, but is there any final things? We should close soon. I don't want to burden this evening with any further stuff, but something you could think about with your meditation, if you want to, is to do a little practice that I've been doing. I've been guiding it in the studios I work in, and I've done guided meditation. And I have a new group now in, in Queens, Woodside uh, at Dharma House. Uh, so if anybody's interested, I'll tell you about that. I'm, I don't want to talk about it from here. Um, but, um, but we've been doing this exercise where we become conscious of the breath, but not just intellectually, but try to get down with it. And imagine that each out-breath is dropping us a little bit deeper below the surface, and that our thinking is like on the surface. And to begin to start to see what the difference is between those things as we get down. And how quickly we'll be back up on the surface, right? If like one, <laughs> oh. But how we could actually gain control over that process without having to get rid of our thoughts. We could actually begin to sort of see underneath them and feel the feelings beneath it. If you've ever read Pema Chodron, and uh, it's all the way through all the Shambhala material as well. But she's, she would say all the time, boycott the story and feel the feeling. And I remember when I was a new student, I would go, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> but I would even, even as an early teacher, I would teach it without knowing what it meant. Because I knew it was important. <laughs> well, I would always say, Pema Chodin says, you know. But it's become like a, 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 what do you call it, a fixation? That's a bad way to look at it, but an obsession of mine to be able to figure out what that means. Like how we don't have to get rid of the thought necessarily, but how we could begin to access what's actually, you know, the 90% of the, uh, what are those things? Um, that boats run into, right? Iceberg. That's below the surface, you know. 
Like, what else is in there? And I think that we make the mistake of thinking we have to figure it all out cognitively. We have to know what this is and what our mom did. And, and it, 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 so that's why I love that I Ching thing. It's not about that. It's not about your personal history. It's about coming into deeper and deeper understanding of what it is to be human, you know? And having this belief that if you go far enough, you'll realize that you're good and that you're okay, and that everyone else is too, on some level. 